0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program... I'm looking at autobiographical comics and graphic novels that are inspired by life. Later in the show, you'll hear a panel discussion that I hosted at the Lakes International Comic Art Festival last year, with graphic novelists Stephen Appleby, Sarah Begum, Rachel Smith, and Matt Smith, who are talking about their titles, Dragman, Mongrel, Quarantine Comics, and you're stuck with me now in front of a live audience. However, to start off with, in a talk that was given as part of last year's Academic Comics Conference, "L'enfance de l'art, jeunesse et bande dessinée" (The Childhood of Art, Youth and Comics), which was hosted at the University de Picardie Jules Verne, Lawrence Grove from the University of Glasgow is discussing his personal experiences of observing depictions of disability in comics for children and adults. Following Lawrence's talk about the portrayal of disability in comics, there are questions asked by University of Picardy's Natalie Saudi Welby and Justin Wadlow, as well as myself.
2: So, if we look at popular culture of, of the 1970s, and I've picked the 1970s because that was when I was a kid. Um, so, it's very personal, and you will see that throughout the talk I'm going to give today, part of um one of the main themes is this notion of of personal experience and i think personal experience is obviously something that's key to to childhood to jeunesse but also key to those dealing with disabilities um it it's what i'm going to refer to as personal journey criticism anyway the 1970s the, the the bad old days the impression i get is that the tendency in popular culture was to sidestep disabilities. Um, That was when they were mentioned, they they were taken apart. So a couple of quick examples before we get on to, to comics from the culture of the United States. But of course, to me as a kid growing up in England and in France, in the 70s, the culture of the United States was my culture. Um, do, do, do you remember Ironside? He was a detective in a, in a wheelchair which ran from 1967 to 1975. Um, he'd been paralysed by a bullet wound, um, but his disability, however defining, however visible, tends to be sidestepped. The emphasis has always been put on his acumen and his strong will. A second example, and this was one of my favourites as a kid. Um, was uh, The Six Million Dollar Man, which originally ran from 1973 to 78, which I think was more of a programme, although it had an adult audience, it also had a kid audience. Again, the disability is not natural. It was a result of an accident, his spaceship blowing up, and it sidestepped immediately. In the opening theme, we hear, we can rebuild him. Comics versions existed, so in in -in, look-in, but not just... Comics versions that followed the series, but there were also quite a few parodies, and these are the parodies that I discovered um, as I was going through my my personal childhood memory collection. Now I can't cover everything, um, and it's realizing that it's a very specific topic, but it's a specific topic. But it's still a topic which you know you can only touch upon within a half hour slot. Um, so what I will be looking at are samples using the following suggested setup, a section on early comics or proto-comics, so this will be the 17th and the 18th century, then early comics specifically for children, and for that I've chosen pre-1939, and then just one 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 more example that of the wartime messages, specifically World War II. And the idea is to conclude then with what type of insight can this historical overview give us. Um, needless to say, and I'll be repeating this, my my overview is far from exhaustive. My conclusions are going to be intuitive rather than based on in-depth data collection, but what I'm hoping to give here is a catalyst for discussion. So, the first section, early or proto-comics. The history of comics and the questions of the, of the world's first comic is something that's very much interested me. Um, it's been debated, but the discussion started, or at least one of the earliest discussions appeared in comics for children, namely this Le Roman Vrai des Bandes Dessinées, which appeared in Pilote from 1961. Now, in terms of the first modern comic, and by that I mean mass produced, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you to allow me a little bit of indulgence, and I'm going to tell you that the first modern comic, no, it wasn't Euler of Fair it was the Glasgow Looking Glass of 1825, which predates Fair by depending on which books you take, by about nine years. Although telling stories, that said, telling stories with pictures has always existed, some would say from cave art onwards, and for our purposes, um, we should note that such image narratives, um, even 19th century comics, they tend not to be for children. Comics started for adults, comics in inverted commas, and then moved to children. Now, obviously... um, if you want more on this notion of, of proto-comic, there's David Kunzel's volume, which is magnificent. So, very brief examples, but it's none the less useful, I think, to see how graphic narratives portray disabilities. So let's start at the Hunterian Art Gallery, Calou's Grande Misère de la Guerre of 1632. Now, these are a series of prints, a series of 18 prints, showing various stages of wartime activity, from pillaging to revenge lynching. And image 15, for example, is very much showing the post-war disabled. And, this is, and, and when we look more closely at this image, we will see that there, there's a whole array of what was considered to be disability as a post-war result. So we have going from those who are unca- incapable, it seems, even to move to those who are, are just about pushing themselves forward to those on different forms of crutches. William Hogarth is seen by many as the precursor to modern comics with image narratives such as The Harlot's Progress of 1732. Gin Lane of 1751 shows the negative effects of hard liquor. It's part of a dual narrative that goes with Beer Street. Again, Hogarth equates disability with neglect, so we see the woman under the influence of drugs and drinks neglecting her child, but also we see in the background those who are disabled, it seems to be some sort of punishment um, as a result of ill, often the the ills of society. Industry and Idleness by Hogarth is a 12-print series of 1747, which was aimed, and this is where it's interesting for us, was aimed specifically at working children. So um, it involves a dual character narrative, that of Francis Goodchild and Thomas Idle. We see in plates six, eleven, and twelve the display of disability. Um, he's he's married well. He's he's arrived there. This is the industrious apprentice, and what we see is somebody who is unable to walk. Again, it it they're, they're thrown in all the time as a way of saying this is a portrait of society and what we get in society is disability is an admonishment for transgression or societal shortcomings. Early comics for children. Moving through the 19th and onto the 20th century, as we approached the Second World War, illustrated publications, comics, tended to be increasingly for children. And French examples, such as... A couple of examples these were the type of journals which would come out on a regular basis and on the whole tended to aim at a bourgeois conservative and that could be catholic target audience but often with a didactic purpose. Now in general I have found that at this time those with disabilities or deformities are figures of amusement. So it's almost switched from being admonishment for societal shortcomings, um, and perhaps the best example is where we have this one. The one you all know is Snow White's Seven Dwarves. Originally from 1937, the illustrated book version, which is dated from 1954, but copyrighted to 1940. As you know, everything about the dwarves is cute and, of course, diminutive. And some of the quotes from this, when Snow White, Blanche-Neige meets them, we she says, like a doll's house, Il doit y avoir ici sept petits enfants, there must be seven little children here. ont besoin de quelqu'un qui prenne soin de And it seems to me that this is almost a phrase which sums up attitudes towards disability in post-war, in pre-war children's a publication anti besoin de quelqu'un qui prenne soin de do they need somebody to take care of them. The dwarves provide the humour in a tale that is extremely dark. It's the battle against absolute evil. But let's not forget that the one who is mute simply is pejoratively dumb as well. Um, so there is, there are all these cliches coming through in children's publications. Elsewhere, shortcomings of disability of the disabled provide humour at their expense. In the becassin series, one of the key characters is the Monsieur Minon, P-R-O-E-Y-M-I-N-O-A-N-S, who provides light inter- interludes as a ra- result of his age. Related infirmities. Basically, he can't see. In this Robinson strip, 19 uh, so 1937, and again, this is the type of import that was based on Le Journal de Mickey, which would be using U.S. imports, which were syndicated, which would then be translated into French. In the Robinson strip, uh, the boy's handicap is the catalyst for humour as. Popeye, or Matjohan, as he was known at that time, brings along a pal who will then bring the school to the handicapped boy, rather than having a handicapped boy having to go to school. Alternatively, those with disabilities can also be seen as being humorously fraudulent, in this case from a Catalonian publication. So it it, it does tend to be not just limited to France or, or England. In this Catalonian publication, the joke is on the, on the basis that he must really be blind because he's referring to the woman as ma sort of pretty one, Mabel or something like that. So not only is it making fun of disabilities, it's sexist as well. But that, the, the, they would often go hand in hand, and if we wanted to talk about racist elements, I do find that the type of humour that's used with those with disabilities is the same type of humour that is used in a sexist way or in a racist way. Just to point out as an aside, this type of humour is repeated in the 1970s. Um, for instance, in Beezer, one of the comics which came out of Dundee from DC Thompson, one of the leading strips was Colonel Blink, who it plays upon the fact that his eyesight doesn't work properly, and so here we see him uh, confusing a kite with a Concorde aeroplane. Or contemporary works, and again, another quick aside such as Viz, which is a contemporary journal. It's still going today. It started in the 1970s. But Major Misunderstanding is a parody of comics from the 1970s, which in turn, to a certain extent, pick up pre-war comics. And so, again, the joke with Major Misunderstanding is that his eyesight doesn't work, and so it's somebody who is drugged. Uh, please lead him, lead him away and Major Misunderstanding says thinks he's a statue and the statue is being removed for reasons of political correctness um, in the case of cognitive difficulties and this one example I've got this is from 1938 it seems to me that the character who is the baddie has a heavy, heavy dose of dark humour it's not just that he is a baddie who comes across as aggressive, but he's in some way inciting, I think, people to, to laugh at him, which diffuses then the adventure story. Again, these are basi- but examples, and they're no means exhaustive. But the feeling that I get very much is that comics in the pre-war period, disabilities are primarily a source of humour. When we get to the war... The stance seems to change, and it becomes more sinister. And again, this is just from a personal intuition from reading through and through, going through a number of examples. As an aside, I would mention a study that I did of of cartoons in L'illustration. L'illustration was a, an early example of photojournalism, huge, highly selling. Um, it then sided with Petain. Um, and in World War Two, it was slightly collaborationist and stopped publishing afterwards. But I found that in World War One, whereas the disabled, and in particular les gueules cassées, were depicted sympathetically in photos and accompanying texts, and we'd see lots of these photos, such as these les blessés gardes le sourire, whereas in the photos and the journalistic articles the disabilities are presented, I found that in the cartoons, and there are plenty of cartoons in Illustration, tend to be in the back pages, then the disabilities associated with the war are completely overlooked, and it's more such as wearing gas masks reminds us of the carnival in Venice, um, overlooked to, to the point of absurdity. In journals for children, and here I'll be looking more at World War Two, there is, of course, still a propaganda element. But by this time, it seems to me that disabilities are portrayed as a shortcoming, even as punishment for weakness or wrongdoing. So this is going back more to the journals for adults in, let's say, the 17th, 18th, 19th century. When I started researching Le Temeraire, nobody had heard of it. There's a a book on it by Pascal Horry, but it was basically the one children's publication in occupied France. It was produced out of Paris. Um, All others had either gone south or had been banned. But this one was produced by French people, for French people, but it very much embraced Nazi ideology. But this was the journal which dominated wartime France. And I think an extra study that would be interesting would be to what extent has the psyche of Um, a whole generation growing up with this as as the only popular culture has that imbued uh, a certain way of thinking. Well, in one of the texts in here, uh, La Chanson Inachevée, The Unfinished Song, in, in this particular story, we see how the hump of the hunchback who is results from his greed, whereas Pierre, his unselfish friend, loses his hunchback, his, his hump, forevermore. In the Bon Dessinée in Le Téméraire, one of the market feature is what we might call le délit de Salgueul. It's what you look like is who you are, and if you don't look good, it's because you're not a good person, which obviously fits in with Nazi ideology. So, whereas the baddies might have English, yes, there are lots of references to the English as the baddies, and definitely English, not Scottish or Irish, the English communist or most commonly Jewish features, these can often be coupled with physical deformity. Now, ironically, the series that ran during the war, with which respect retrospectively we often have difficulties, displays disabilities comparatively rarely. That series is, of course, Tintin, and perhaps the most difficult of the albums is L'Etoile Mysterieuse from 1942, which is one of the clearest examples of Nazi propaganda in the Tintin series. It was pre-published in Le Soir, which was a collaborationist journal run from Brussels. And it opens, it seems to me, important with a character who's clearly got physical impediments. And what is the word that he's saying? Um, which is almost hangs over the album as a whole, le châtiment, punishment. Pardon, monsieur, pourriez-vous me le dire, le châtiment. So it's this idea of punishment throughout the album and that is produced, that is opened by somebody with a physical disability. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, firstly, such portrayals and moreover, the general absence of the disabled Will seem alien to those familiar with 20th century graphic medicine. Graphic medicine has become absolutely enormous. There are blogs, there are articles, it's extremely wide, Um, you could go on for for days and days. However, once again, my selection is limited, and my conclusions are based on intuition rather than in-depth analysis of a coherent corpus. In-depth analysis of a coherent corpus, it seems to me that's what you're getting at, at this graphic medicine website. Systematic application of literary and sociological theory. That's not what I've been doing. Now, is that a problem? What I have been doing is basically working on the material that is available to me, be that in my office or in the stacks of the Hunterian Art Gallery. Now, is that a problem? I think such a methodology would be problematic if I were to try and convince you that my conclusions are exhaustive. But in practical terms, would that ever have been possible? I would say that my research is unashamedly based upon Glasgow collections, my own collections, and the comics I grew up with as a kid. Now, when I was doing a PhD, you you couldn't do that. It was Gustave L'Encant. Research had to be empirical. We didn't admit to the fact that research was personal, and but what it is that spurs us on to look more deeply into certain subjects is what has affected us in our own life or affected those around us. I'd like to suggest that an alternative viewpoint would be to be more personal, and it's what I call personal journey criticism. It allows, it seems to me, for a more inclusive, personal look at society. And it allows a different range of forms of expression with which to approach that. The proof is, we are now able to study comics at universities. Comics help us better to integrate disabilities. And a historical viewpoint can allow us to see that values, gatekeepers... And hierarchies have changed. Comics are part of that change, as is disabled visibility and inclusion. So this is where I'd like to conclude. I'd like to say perhaps it's the very reason that lend comics a positive role today. Immediate accessibility via images. The presentation and questioning of stereotypes. Remember that that's exactly what caricature is based on. And the focus on action and communication, or increasingly in comics, for instance, those of Chris Ware, the lack of action and communication. But I would say that these are the reasons, the very reasons that make comics so accessible today also meant that historical comics suited a less inclusive time. So there is a link there. And upon that, I will stop. In my hope, but I've given you some personal material upon which to reflect.
3: I'm going to ask my question, uh, which is obviously going to be about Professor uh, Calculus, uh, because when I think of disability in comics, I think of Professor Calculus. Now, I, I don't know if you were aware of Lawrence, but there has been a debate in French uh, libraries. And Tintin in Congo has been taken out of children's departments into the adult department because it was too racist. You know, RG Suizet is deeply racist. You don't generally find it in in French libraries and the places for children. So uh, I wanted to ask, why has Professor Calculus made it? I mean, he hasn't been adapted. It hasn't been changed. Is it because the representation of disability when it is a caricature it it works as long as the figure is lovable but if it's associated to evil it just will not make it so I I wanted to ask you what's your feeling and what does the figure of Professor Calculus evoke to maybe the others?
2: Yeah I I think that's exactly it but Calculus is is a lovable buffoon Um, on on, on, on the one hand he uh has all these disabilities, on the other hand he has this incredible intellect he's the one who hides microfilms in umbrellas Um, so he's almost like an inverse James Bond he's doing all this clever stuff and then he's falling over with disabilities Um, I think the question of Tantal Congo is really interesting Um, I I gave a a lecture a while ago for Villanova and we put out uh, a poster which included the case which was brought um, to I think it was the Brussels Court, but it should be banned. And the question was whether these images should should be on the poster. So it it it, it was really difficult to say to what extent do we um, then avoid the subject. So if we'd have taken the images off the off the poster, it would have been avoiding the subject. But I don't get the impression that that's the same with disabilities. So I think that um, with Offensive material that is basically racist and undermining people on the basis of of skin colour, that will be clamped down on fairly quickly, but material that is offensive and undermining people on the basis of disabilities um, I don't think has reached the same level. Um, Why that should be, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's just a question of time. Um, Why, as you say... Um, the, the characters in Tantal Congo are, are the natives are in, entirely unacceptable, whereas Professor Calculus uh, it remains a figure of fun rather than a, a figure of disgust. I don't know. But it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting comment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alex, you had a question.
1: Yes. Although, can, can I kind of turn it into two questions because I just want to follow up on what you were just saying um for our our french um for the majority of people in this room um you're probably not aware of this but in the uk over the last week there's been a somewhat stupid debate about uh, a much loved kids comic the Beano, renaming a character fatty as freddy um because it's you know offensive to people who are overweight and encourages bullying um and I I don't read the Beano or the dandy or similar children's comics uh, anymore on a regular basis. But perhaps the next bastion will be for the kind of humour you were talking about, that people who are ridiculed for being short-sighted, that will be a kind of strand of humour that is excised from kids' comics, and whether there'll be a right-wing reaction to that as well. Um, Perhaps you can briefly comment on that. But the question I was going to ask was, when you were talking about The Six Million Dollar Man, Um, it kind of suggests that you could actually give an entire paper about the use of overcoming disability as a trope in superhero comics. Um, You know, the whole kind of mad scientist thing leading to the creation of characters like Captain America and Wolverine, or the idea of a wheelchair-bound character, such as the former Batgirl, who is disabled in an infamous Alan Moore comic, or one of the incarnations of Venom, who's a character that has no legs, but then those are regrown by an alien symbiote when he becomes a superhero. That seems to be something that has become a trope over the last 20 or 30 years.
2: Yeah, Xavier as well. Um, The idea that, again, the quote from Six Million Dollar Man, we can rebuild him. Um, so it's not the idea that we accept disabilities and we just have a different type of experience. It's the idea that we should try and do something about it and put it right. Well, okay, that, that obviously that that is one way of looking at it, but it's not the only way of looking at it. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm I'm divided on this as to whether it's best to to put forward that viewpoint. I think that's certainly better than just. Leaving disabled people out of comics altogether which is which is what happened in again I was looking through um, all of my personal collections here and and i, I haven't put the bean or the dandy aside, but I've got things like cheeky um, Beezer and there aren't really disabled kids in there at all um, and so maybe it is that uh um, a mission which is more dangerous than than a, a conservative reaction to mm-hmm. disability that the one you mentioned um which is on the screen behind you is very much i think uh, the story behind that was it was a, a daughter who who said well I, I i love comics but there's nobody with whom i can identify and so her dad said right i'm gonna Create somebody for you, um, and um, so I think uh, there's the question of omission, the question of ridicule, and then the question of uh, reparation. So all, all of these are problematic in different ways. Which doesn't answer your question at all, Alex. But it, <laughs> it does show. That, but I'm thinking about it and and and, and, and have the same ideas going going through my mind without any real answers.
1: I mean, I guess I'd also add, you know, thinking of uh, overcoming disability as some kind of representation of being a superhero Uh, in the UK, when um, the TV companies realized that there was money to be made from uh, showing the disabled Olympics, one of the taglines that channel four used was kind of here come the superheroes, which at the time was being was seen as being celebratory and now is actually seen as perhaps being uh, ableist because actually these are people just getting on with their lives and doing the things that able people would do doesn't make them superhuman. It just makes them, you know, capable of, of, you know, being human.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think as I remember, a lot of debate centered around Christopher Reeve, who was the incarnation of Superman who then uh ended up in a wheelchair because of a horse riding accident and and it was this whole question of can superman end up in a wheelchair
1: um yes i i have one one question uh for, for lawrence in a world which is divided between sort of high and low culture uh we've been dealing or you've been dealing with uh disabilities in sort of low culture I mean, if we take comics as being part of low culture um, and saying that as you mentioned iron side etc uh, it was sometimes sort of uh, dismissed or overlooked uh, has by any chance high culture done a better job in looking at disability or creating um, a more positive image for disability or tackling the um, you know the subject right on
2: I think I'll sidestep the question there by saying that um, the high and low culture uh, definitions are as problematic as the disabled and abled themes. And so, so the examples I gave now from earlier from Jacques Callot and 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 William Hogarth, people would say that, oh, that's high, high culture. You had to get special permission to go into the stacks of the Hunterian to see that. And you were... Um, going through them with great circumspect uh, 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 reverence. Well, what what makes them high culture, and and again this is Pierre Mordieu, but what makes them high culture is the consecration through time. Um, Now is it, it one of my conclusions was that Comics, accessible culture can give us a viewpoint to a certain time and place, and that time and place then becomes changed as we look retrospectively back on it. I think I'm thinking out loud... Here, Justin, rather than answering your question properly, I'm trying to think of well. If we look at high culture, if we if if we do come up with some examples, well, they tend to be inevitably from the past. So if we if I I did think of let's say looking at uh, uh, some of the Bruegel paintings and wondering if, if there were dis, uh, depictions of disabled people there, but then again, would would we have then said that Bruegel was low culture of its time? And maybe the, the answer to your question is to say that if we look at something from the past, a Bruegel or a Hogarth, which we now consider to be high culture, and it's displaying disabled people, then it probably wasn't high culture in its time. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, it's the idea that the, uh, the portrayal of the disabled links you into low culture.
1: Lawrence's talk was recorded at the L'Enfance de l'Art, Jeunesse et bon Dessinée conference at the University de Picardy Jules Verne last year, which was in partnership with Graphic Brighton, an annual event in the city of Brighton, returning after a two-year break because of Covid. And this year's conference is going to be looking at children's comics and will be taking place sometime in the summer. For more info about Graphic Brighton, please go to graphicbrighton.com. Lawrence can be found on Twitter, at LawrenceGrove9, where you can find more info about all of his comics-related work and research, including the various comic book journals that he's involved with, and his research at the University of Glasgow. Coming up next, we have the panel discussion that I recorded at last year's Lakes International Comic Art Festival. The setup for the panel were that two of the creators spoke to me, while the other two drew in front of the audience with their art projected on a big screen behind us. Later in the show, Stephen Appleby and Matt Smith joining on the sofa to talk about their titles Dragman, which is the graphic novel by Stephen based on his own trans experience, and You're Stuck With Me Now, which is Matt's graphic novel based on his webcomic Smith vs. Smith. To start off with, cartoonists Sarah Begum and Rachel Smith will be talking about their graphic novels, Mongrel and Quarantine Comics, in this Q&A which was recorded in front of a live audience. It's interesting that you both do, well, everyone here does, but you both do autobiographical comics, which are very much chronicling events from your own lives. Um, Rachel, you've been very much kind of doing yours in public, putting them on the internet and then collecting them as comics. Well, Sarah, you started yours at art school, I guess, as you know, a project that you were developing then and then continued as a graphic novel. So in a way, I suppose you both got feedback, you from your internet audience and I guess you from your peers and tutors. (laughs) Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Do you want me
4: to go first? Sure, yeah, you go for it. Um, So as you were just saying, that's correct. So I was getting feedback from, you know, just the art school convention of taking your work to crits and getting feedback from that. But actually I found... My most useful feedback was when I graduated and went out of that educational context. Because I mistakenly revealed that it was autobiographical, people found it uncomfortable to kind of criticise the narrative. Um, So I think when you transition from a studio project to a published project, it becomes... Yeah, they see it in a different light. It's not a form of, like, just a personal project anymore. It's actually something I want to put forward and share with the world. So that was quite um, different and uh, you know I kind of exhibited um, you know pieces because one thing that I was really interested in is a kind of crossover between fine art and illustration and you know like how I got into graphic novels was originally starting um, studying Islamic miniatures so you know I was getting feedback on the artwork through sharing it but the content I kind of held really closely like I didn't let my family see it for a really long time Um, I was until all I was doing was finishing um, pencilling the final pages because I didn't want anyone to influence it, basically, because I wanted to acknowledge that memoir, it's all very subjective. It's my truth. It's not everyone's truth. We see, I remember things differently than my brothers did. And, you know, when they're reading it, they're like, this didn't happen or this happened this way. And, you know, and them reading my book, it would trigger memories in them and they would remind me of things that I had forgotten about. So it was a way to kind of honour the kind of subjective truth of
5: memoir for me. Mm. Um, yeah, rambling answer. <laughs> <laughs> <to you. laughs> no, I, I wish I'd gone first now because that was really good. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I started um, autobio stuff because um, my first therapist said it might be good for me to kind of uh, put my drawings into... Um, uh, yeah, to kind of talk about my 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 problems through what I loved doing, which was drawing. Um, so I my first autobiocomics were kind of under the name One Good Thing, mm. uh, and I would draw one good thing that happened to me every day in, in, a, in an effort to kind of stay positive. And um, and at first, I I, I uh, like Sarah, kind of kept them a, a secret, really, in in this little sketchbook. Um, and then my boyfriend at the time said, "Well, why don't you like put them on on social media and stuff." and um and I did and it was really scary but everyone really liked them mm. and 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 found them uh, helpful for themselves and stuff um so yeah that the the first kind of feedback was was very positive um online and that's the the nice thing about social media is that you get feedback pretty much instantly on uh, mm. whatever you whatever you do um whereas the only other way I get feedback really other than people reviewing my work is at, at conventions and festivals like this mm. um so and we haven't been able to do that for a while, yes, <laughs> so indeed. it's really nice. Um, it was nice to kind of have that while I was doing quarantine comics, the the latest kind of autobio project that I did, it was nice to be able to put work online and to have mm. conversations with people um, so yeah, feedback's always been um, very very oh wow um, very important <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in, as part of my process
1: well and, and it's great that you said that the feedback has generally been very positive online. Mm. Because I think if you're doing it in a way, in some small way as a kind of therapy to kind of explore your emotions and your sense of self, if anyone is negative about it, that could have been actually a kind of really bad backfiring of that experience.
5: Yeah, you'd have to be... (laughs) Though, you? <laughs> well, <laughs> have you seen the internet there's a lot of... yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't yeah. get
0: many
1: yeah. like it, so. <laughs> and in terms of you know you, you both tell very personal stories and very personal experiences in your comics. Some of that must be somewhat therapeutic in order mm. to be able to explain uh, share that experience with other people, but at the same time, do you worry that you're kind of exposing yourself too much? That you're, you know, letting out too many emotions and then m- making yourself vulnerable?
4: Um, not at all, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I mean that sounds overly confident, but I think um, something you know, navigating a religious upbringing and where you feel like you're held to account to everybody that sees you—I don't know—walking alongside a boy that might be a boyfriend. Um, I just got to the point where um, and I feel like you know at the end of the day I I, I still believe in God so I'll answer to God but I don't I'm not interested in answering to anybody else Mm.
5: yeah it's I'm a little bit (laughs) scared um, sometimes Uh, again not doing conventions for a long time I kind of I think I got a bit more uh, open about what I would Mm. draw um, and then now that I'm doing them again I get people saying like, oh, and, and how's therapy going? And it's, you know, I know nothing about them and mm. they know a lot about me and my, my mental issues. There were some things I left out during when I was doing quarantine comics. I don't have like rules, like I won't talk about this or I won't talk about that, but I do kind of, I, I, it's a case-by-case case mm. thing, I think. I If something happens... And I draw it, and I realize it reflects uh, someone I know in a, a negative light. Then I won't do that. Um, I'm only really interested in reflecting myself in a negative light. I don't know why I do that, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very honest. But I try. I keep it about me. Um, and if if it's someone, if I do want to tell um, a story about someone else, sometimes just draw them as like an animal or something. So.
4: See, yeah. I just find it really interesting you're saying like you set boundaries for yourself I'm like no I won't talk about that to you I just have no boundaries I just like <laughs> it, it just comes out somebody brings up the topic well, so that's, that's useful Great <laughs> yeah. to have as an
5: autobiography. and they regret asking me about it
1: so. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess as well you know you have all of the tools available uh, to you as artists you can use visual mm-hmm. metaphors I mean you know um I don't know how much your book, The Rabbit, was autobiographical in terms of what you put into the characters, but obviously you've never kind of hung out with a giant cartoon rabbit. Um, Which is a shame. (laughs) But similarly, you know, with with your book, uh, Sarah, there's this visual trope you use up until the moment where your fiancé meets your parents, that he's drawn as kind of like a mannequin with no face. So you can use these kind of tricks that aren't realistic, but perhaps tell you something about Mm. the inner lives of the characters. Yes. That must be helpful as an artist that you can do yeah. those sort of things If you know, rather than just being in front of a webcam and talking about your life that you can mm. use these kind of visual metaphors and so forth. Yeah,
5: and
4: I think um, it allows us not to be completely explicit about things. Um, so I, I was talking about this earlier in the previous panel. You know, for me, autobiography isn't revealing absolutely everything about mm. yourself because um, first of all, that'd be really boring. We don't need to know um, every single detail. But also, you know, you have a right to keep some stuff to yourself. So um, it's a way to kind of hint at like certain dimensions going on, like near the, um, close to the end of the book, I completely cross out, I don't know what's happening with my father because I didn't feel like that was my story Mm. to share. And I felt, you know, I lost the right then to, um, you know, share what's happening in that scene. And so, yeah, you can allude to things, I think in a, um, in a way with these visual metaphors that perhaps would be more difficult in other mediums.
0: Mm.
4: Mm.
5: I, I guess um, well I use I draw my depression as like a big black dog that follows mm. me around um, and I draw my sort of positivity as a, a big white dog and I kind of use that as a, a kind of shorthand of how I'm feeling like if the black dog's very big and the white dog's very small then I'm not doing too well and, and vice versa um, I guess I use that instead of like every comic starting with Rich or wasn't doing very well today <laughs> yeah. like I don't need yeah. to oh, that's already told And Mm. I can get on with what I want to say.
1: And I guess in terms of uh, curating stories from your own life, I mean, Rachel, when you're doing um, regular comics that you put online, you're using the kind of traditional language of a comic strip, which has a beginning, a middle and an end, and tells that kind of vignette,
6: Mm.
1: almost Mm. having to also have a punchline in a number of panels. And then, Sarah, because obviously your book is divided up into chapters again, perhaps you're thinking of taking moments from your life and thinking how do I turn this into
0: yeah.
1: a self-standing story
0: yeah
1: is that difficult or helpful in a way as a writer and artist
4: yeah so for me having a non-linear approach to autobiography partly influenced by kind of like all the postmodern theory I was reading on autobiography at the time and um, this kind of non-linear structure became about capturing like subjective truth for me Mm -hmm. rather than telling everything exactly how it happened and I actually found when I wrote an event just after it happened I like capture all the conversation and I didn't need to whereas if I let the kind of memory fade and like those kind of important bits be emphasized through um, time that it, those kind of those that narrative that I captured became more powerful, mm. and I think as well um, the kind of meandering of you know weaving in and out of the past and the present it comes from just like my scatty brain as well. Just kind of like when I'm when I was thinking about it, you know, if something would happen and that would trigger something else. And I think it has a lot to do with like, um, dyslexia as well, just like, really struggling to maintain like, focus. And it's just, yeah, everything just goes off. But because I come back to it, I managed to kind of smooth it out over, over a long process. Mm. Uh, yeah,
5: I, I don't know. I try and keep mine quite concise. I think, especially during quarantine comics, my, I had a rule that the comic had to fit on a piece of A4 paper. Mm. So it couldn't really be more than six panels unless the panels got, the, then they start to just get really, really skinny. Um, and I just, I think I wanted to get my feelings across in a very clear way. So if I needed more than that amount of space, I guess I, I figured I wasn't really sure how I was feeling well enough. Like, mm, um, mm. So yeah, that was kind of the idea to keep them quite concise and, and clear.
1: Mm. Yeah. And both of you as well have kind of brought in um other genres to your work um in your book sarah you talk about jinns being Mm. creatures that can possess people and you have imaginary conversations with satan Mm. Um, we spoke about uh your book rabbit um rachel and also you've drawn uh doctor who comics starring matt smith's doctor not that one um and
5: no it's david Tennant.
1: david Tennant. okay um <laughs> ruin my gag um, <laughs> um, uh, does it help being able to move back and forth between you know fantastical genres and then talking about your own lives again perhaps as another tool that you can bring in
5: i yeah i enjoy having more than one project on the go at any one time and it's best if they're quite different because um, if i'm banging my head against the wall with one i can go and bang my head against the wall with the other one but yeah it's and it's good to kind of yeah having a a, like the rabbit is quite a long graphic novel and and it was nice to be able to flex those muscles as well as telling very concise uh
4: moments
0: of of my own
5: life yeah Mm. yeah for me
4: you know just the in the comics medium the fact that you can get away with these you can add these you know the shaitan talking to you in the mirror which you wouldn't be um, able to, you know, wouldn't happen in real life but because it's kind of my world and that was a way for me to emphasize the when you're um, brought up in a religious way how, you know, the shaitan has this presence in your life if you do something bad it's down to the shaitan leading you um, astray so what better way to depict that presence than you know, visually drawing that being in the images mm,
1: Interesting Matt, I was just talking to uh, your distant cousin and um, <laughs> and Sarah about bringing other genres into uh, your work. And obviously, um, when you do your autobiographical comics, it's kind of like a humorous, fictionalised version of your own life. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also have, done, have written sci-fi and horror comics. Yeah. Do
6: you find that useful to you as a creator to be able to go back and forth between the two genres? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to read different genres. So, like... Mm. It's, I, I always feel weird being at conventions because I've got like my stuff for kids, then I've got my cute stuff about being married, which kids don't care about, and then I've got like horror stuff, so I always got to make sure the kids go to one end of the table, and if anyone's into horror, they can come to this other end. Uh, but some of the, the stuff that I really like about the horror is is still drawn from real life. like There's a story, I lived in the Middle East in uh, this, this city, Ain in the United Arab Emirates, which is not Dubai, it's not Abu Dhabi, it's really boring. And I wrote a science fiction story about a character who is in this hermetically sealed suit that keeps him comfortable and he's got everything he needs, but he's trapped under lava for hundreds of years and can't get out. And that's, I didn't realize that was autobiographical until (laughs) I finished it, that we were living in this really, it was very perfectly pleasant, but it was boring and there's nothing to do and you just feel very trapped. But Mm. all your needs are met. It's just, you feel like you're in this hermetically sealed, super science fiction horror suit. Mm. So I, I uh, there are autobiographical elements, elements even in like these these horror and sci-fi genre ones. So still pulling from that life to, what mm. really is what keeps me up at night. Yeah, yeah. and for you, Stephen, even
1: before um, your graphic novel Dragman, which presumably does bring in autobiographical experiences, but as far as we know, you don't have a superhero alter ego and fly through the uh, the skies at night. You, you know. always did. Um, you did your Captain Star strips, and you also brought yes. in kind of magical realist elements into even autobiographical stories. So being able to tap into genre, is that something you found helpful?
0: Yes. I mean, I've always uh, basically done work kind of using myself and my feelings about the world and, you know, just like you were saying, Matt. And, uh, you know, so Captain Star, I mean, I went to boarding school and I always thought that Captain Star was like these characters stuck in one little spaceship world mm. you, you know boarding school was another world you know from from the reality of the world that I was in until I was 11 you know mm. and uh, so, so there's all this autobiographical stuff in them all and like the drawings I was doing there I, I know I was asked to be part of this because of Dragman which is clearly autobiographical and my agent always called it my graphic memoir <laughs> and I would keep trying to correct him but maybe he was right you know in a way, but um, so yeah. So, so you know, men in their burrows is sort of mad and surreal, but sort of true, mm. maybe. And and chairs thinking, who am I? You know, I mm. mean, that's my all. Loads of my work is about who am I.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. You know, um, well, and it's interesting thinking of uh, Dragman being you know semi autobiographical. I guess thinking of um, You know, having a different persona, you know, when you wear clothes that are atypical for your gender, in a way, is being able to be the person you want to be rather than hiding in your civilian identity. I mean, you know, if you look at Batman comics um, over the last 20 years, the kind of notion they have in those these days is like Batman is what he wants to be, while Bruce Wayne is the fake persona that he has to adopt.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I did Dragman, or it became possible for me to do a book, was because I saw the parallel between superheroes having a secret life or two lives and cross-dressing trans people, you know, as I would have called myself a transvestite, you know, having these two, you know, secret life that nobody knows about. So, yeah... um, and I've forgotten the question. Oh, uh,
1: <laughs> Just, you know, like the, the metaphor of being a superhero oh, yeah. and being empowered. Well,
0: the yeah. thing about changing clothes, you can completely change sort of who you are or your mm. personality. And, I, you know, I don't know, it would have to be a close friend who would say whether I was the same or different. I always say that I'm trying to be myself by dressing mm. like this rather than trying to be a woman or, or a man. I'm just sort of trying to be me somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But... You know, I don't know if that's true. You know, during the lockdown, I completely lost track at one point of sort of who I was,
1: if you know what I mean. (laughs) I think a lot of us (laughs) did. It's quite scary. And Matt, with your, um, a lot of people know you for your short strips uh, that were shared online before you collected them in print. I guess you must have had a similar experience to Rachel, that when you're um, creating strips that are being distributed online and they have to be short and have to kind of have a gag involved yeah. and are being shared with an audience. There's all sorts of similar experiences there in terms of being quick, being funny and so on and so forth. You know, How is yeah. that?
6: <laughs> uh, it's frustrating. Cause like, I like to read a graphic novel. I like to mm. sit down and really get into the characters and especially auto bio stuff. That's my favorite genre read. You really get to know the character. And when you've got this, this need to be in and out quick as you can, like four to six panels Um, You don't get to dive in and like really get into the characters. And if anyone picks up a copy of uh, You're Stuck With Me Now, it started as kind of trying to serve two masters. And could I make these gag strips? It's a story of how I met my wife, um, how we fell in love and uh, leading up to the wedding with the proposal and everything. And it started as like gag strips. And then it kind of I wanted to tell more and more larger and larger stories. So like part of the book, you can kind of see, oh, this was like a one pager that worked on its own as a webcomic. And then as the story continued, I wanted to make these longer narratives. So like the last two chapters, you can't break them apart like that. And I, I, I always, if I'm going to do something, I want to be able to use it like 10 different times in 10 different ways. So a webcomic mm. that I can collect and print and sell or I can collect into a graphic novel. But at a certain point, you kind of do have to choose what you're trying to do and what the end product is going to be. Mm. So there is a weird kind of. It is this kind of mishmash of part, part, partly those kind of gag strips, those one pages, one and done, and then longer things. Yeah, it's nice kind of being free from that and not having to worry about it, and also just not the pressure you put on yourself to put out, uh, you know, daily strips or weekly strips or whatever. And just mm. I know I'm working on something long. Someone will get, they'll, they'll see it when it's done, but it's going to take longer.
1: Mm. And I suppose for you, Stephen, um, you always did have the pressure of deadlines when you were doing weekly strips. Yes. Uh, for newspapers and so did have to think of what's this week's gag or what's this week's gag and how does it fit into the larger narrative that i'm telling
0: oh gosh well i mean i, I the first thing in a way sort of way is i wasn't actually trying to do gags uh, mm. i was trying to kind of look at the world and make some comment on it or a little philosophical philosophical point or something but and then if it was funny and it seemed to be funny usually so that was great but um uh yeah, the the deadline thing was really useful and all of that came from my own life and friends used to say that they kept in touch with, with what was going on in my life by looking at my huh. guardians, guardianship, for example, um, which surprised me. And I remember really upsetting uh, Nicola, my wife, years ago because I did a drawing about love, which I just thought was an observation I'd made about love and it was people in a swimming pool full of love and they were sort of in love you know swimming around mm. and stuff and then the second drawing was the pool had drained <laughs> and they were all on the bottom sort of looking puzzled and it was love gone away and she was really upset you know and I hadn't intended it like that and and then afterwards I thought actually it a part of it was that observation that love shifts in a relationship mm. doesn't mean it's gone away actually but you know, you, you you have the sort of falling in love, being in love, and it all calming down, and then, mm. yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so autobiographical work that isn't meant to be at all, mm. which is scary.
1: And how did that experience compare to then moving on to a graphic novel where you know actually there aren't weekly dead... Well, I mean, obviously there's an ultimate deadline, but you don't have to finish a certain bit and show it. You know, at a certain date, you can actually take more time in terms of having a beginning and a middle and end over a number of pages.
0: Well, I, there's, there's so many words to describe that. You know, it's <laughs> sort of, I mean, I'm completely happy that I did that book, obviously, and I'm really mm. pleased with how it ended up. But it was a complete nightmare as well. I'd never done anything longer than like four panels, mm. and suddenly I did 330 pages or whatever. Wow. And I just, there was the number of times when I just thought I absolutely can't do this were a huge number of times. It took me about three years. Yeah. Um, and then finding the balance between putting, I wanted the true trans sort of experience as mm. I had experienced it. So putting that in, and then I also wanted it to be a sort of s- surreal kind of thriller and page turner <coughs> Mm. And philosophical, and <laughs> you know whatever. So, you know, and about capitalism on one level, and things like that. So putting it all in, I was like, is this a complete dog's dinner, or is it, is it working? You know, making it work was so hard. But now I want to do another one. Obviously, cool. You know, sort of haven't learned my lesson. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: I mean, I suppose for you, Matt, you found that you were inadvertently doing that on the fly, because you said you started off doing gag strips and then you realized that you were doing a longer narrative and so allowed yourself the space to tell uh, longer stories. Was that kind of liberating as a creator?
6: Yeah, I I mean, I I had done newspaper comic strips in my university paper years ago. That turned into my webcomic and then I took a long break. Um, I lost my hard drive, didn't back up my stuff. Always back up your files. (laughs) Um, And then I just really, the wind was out of my sails until I met my wife. And then I started up again because we sent out our Save the Date as a two-page comic about how we met. And then I was like, I could record this experience. Hopefully I'm only going to be engaged once, so I might as well record it and Mm. just chronicle it. And then I realized, oh, I can start up the webcomic again. And then uh, it actually, the graphic novel used to be our uh, keepsake for the wedding but once I kind of knew that was the end goal now that was very liberating just to not be beholden to three panels or six panels or whatever and uh I think there was a bit of a shift when it does you could turn the page to the next chapter and you could see that like I'm really kind of just letting the panels breathe and letting the story breathe a lot more and but mm. that's the kind of stuff that I like to read. I, I like a good gag strip. I like, like, Calvin and Hobbes is amazing, but I do like those longer stories where you really see the arcs and the changes.
0: Mm. And, and Matt, do you find you give away stuff you didn't intend
6: to give away? <sighs> um, I don't know. I mean, I'm lucky because I have my wife as a filter <laughs> and an editor, and I've learned very on, early on in the relationship that she needs to check stuff before it goes public, whether yeah, yeah. that's online or in the book. Um, And I have run into problems with friends where when when I was doing my university papers, I shared a story that wasn't mine to share. It was all true. And Mm. I thought it was funny. Mm. uh, But uh, apparently my friend saw it in the school paper, ripped it up, tore it to shreds, and we didn't speak for a bit. But we're friends now. Um, But, yeah, I mean, and also we've we've got public personas. Like, whether we're out in the public or not, but we're making appearances now. Like, there's... Well, well, you have and to be sort aware of, of that?
0: Fictionalizing
6: yourself as well, aren't you? Yeah, um, maybe. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, there is. I like. I like comics. I think they're so well suited to autobiography. I also like that we. We're giving ourselves this extra step, this extra barrier, because we're transcribing, we're illustrating. We're, there's so many filters. There's so many. Yes. And yeah, and, and like they were saying, like there, there's it is this acknowledgement that this is our experience, not so much, a, it's not a document, it's not a documentar- documentary, it's not, you know, a, a newspaper recording or whatever. It It is, this is, a, you know, an experience that we're trying to put down on paper. So there yes. is that, there are steps removed. Yes.
1: Which, yeah, I know. Yes, I
6: do know. What you
1: mean. Yeah. But there is still some truth embedded in it. Oh,
6: yeah, absolutely. but I think, uh, maybe you agree, like, I think the emotional truth is... Uh, much of the cliche. That's maybe yes. Yeah, and you give yourself leeway. Like uh, I combine characters, it the story a bit, and so give it. more yeah, of yeah. an arc that's traditional that you would see. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I mean, if anyone's seen a movie that says based on a true story, you know <laughs> that like half the characters didn't exist. Half the characters are yes. mashed into one character, but mm. they're sharing. You know, the 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 heart. The, I don't know. Getting hoity yeah. toity now, but hopefully yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. But then, um, I mean. Uh, you then start to rub up against the idea of, you know, you said you were doing these comics as a record um, of your unfolding relationship with your wife. You know, your great grandchildren might read that and think <laughs> this is the truth, the way that someone might someone might watch The Crown and think this is, you know, documentary truth. You know, but I
6: mean, do you worry anyone about with, that? Anyone with grandparents knows that yeah. half of what grandpa says, grandma's not going to agree with. There is that, yes. No one can keep the family story straight. Yeah. Mm.
1: I was, um, I asked um, Rachel and Sarah earlier about the feedback they had from their readers, and I guess both of you have experienced that over the uh, years as well. Um, And uh, obviously, uh, Matt, you experienced that as a webcomic creator, and um, Stephen, presumably you would have letters from readers even when you were working in newspapers. What was that experience like?
0: I mean, surprisingly few. Okay. I mean, Martin Rosen's here, I don't know if... Anyway, but back in the pre... uh, social media days you know really few letters occasionally if I did cats or dogs <laughs> but actually I did get a response when because Dragman appeared in The Guardian in 2002 so almost 20 years uh, okay. ago and it took a long time to become a book but uh, but, but, since Dragman has been out and because of social media and stuff people have written to me from um, America Germany France uh, and the UK and, and they've said, this is, you know, my story too. You, you know, they've mm. recognised, because I did keep it to, to sort of true things. I mean, you, you know, one thing that two or three people have said to me is, in the book, uh, August Crimp throws away all, all his women's clothes and, res, you know, resolves, no, that's the wrong word, um, and says he's not going to dress up again. Mm. And, you know, nearly every cross-dressing trans person part-time you know somebody who dresses sometimes and not other times has done that at least three three or four times you know mm. and uh, yeah so it's got a lot of that sort of truth in it mm. and I've had people write thank, thanking me for putting that yeah mm. which is really Is nice there anything that was like, like
6: super specific that you thought only you were going through and then you've heard from someone else that
0: Oh well I mean because I was I started doing this in the 70s yeah. um, when I was a teenager and and I re- really thought that I was a complete freak, and you know, nobody else would be doing this. I was That's doing something that was completely kind of abnormal, you know. And uh, and then I came across the odd magazine, you know, weird magazines. I remember walking through Islington in London, and there were pages of a of a magazine that was blowing around, and I picked them up, and it was men dressed as women and one was Christine of Shetland, I remember. And I was like, wow, you know, somebody in Shetland <laughs> <laughs> stressing in women's clothes, you know, that kind of thing. So it was those sort of rare moments. Uh, and, yeah. So, yeah, I did think I was the only person for a long time.
6: Yeah.
1: Matt, what has your feedback been like
6: from readers? Uh, it, it's been nice. I, I kick-started the book. Um, I Decided when things were kind of slowing down, I was like, I, it's, I should probably put this together and self-publish it and kickstart it. So uh, I launched the kickstart of the day that everyone went into lockdown. Mm. So when I thought all my friends and family's Facebook would be filled with, check out Matt's book. It was, <laughs> we're all going to die and I'll never see you again and the world's shutting down. And I was like, uh, uh, grandma, can you like and share my Facebook, <laughs> uh, my Kickstarter post, please? Um, but it was just, it's weird. The internet, it, it, sometimes it's both ways, sometimes it's only one way. Like people who i've never met uh decided to buy and want to hear my story and uh also i had like a tier where you could buy everything i had so people from the states were like yeah i've never heard of this guy i'll buy six mm-hmm. books by this guy and then uh, just hearing from my friends and family who know me it was really sweet to hear the feedback and then a few new readers just writing the same sort of stuff it was really nice yeah. like this connects and this reminds me of me mm-hmm. and my boyfriend and like it was just so sweet and like you know it's it's really cool because that's I think that's what we're all trying to do, is like make those connections through our art and find the things that yeah, we thought maybe definitely. are very specific, but maybe are more general and can bring other people in. And it's nice having that response, of course, yeah. Mm.
1: And one thing um, that I find interesting about both your recent work is obviously with the web comics, you were using kind of like a standard grid in order mm-hmm. to make it manageable with every installment. And with Dragman, uh, you've gone down the kind of Watchman route uh, that there's the nine-panel grid <gasps> on big, every page, big which you then
0: Watchman, yeah.
1: and then you break that as as Gibbons did. Sometimes you'll have a double uh, width panel, or sometimes you'll have a double page spread, That's and then true. you'll also have text pages yeah, in between. Which
0: Watchman did too.
1: So, the, the, having a formal structure and then being able to break it is that useful? Uh,
0: gosh, well, I think I think I. I the the idea that i could do anything with the pages like sort of manga or do weird mm. things would almost be too 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 loose a structure i could do anything and that would be a problem for me it's almost quite nice to have like a color limitation can be nice or whatever mm. so i had a grid and and then occasionally i you know i would mess with it and then it's more effective hopefully but but yeah uh and the writing, I mean, I've always written, I've always written my ideas rather than drawn them. I mean, I do sometimes draw them too, but in notebooks, but mm. I wrote like little scripts for my Guardian strip, usually, um, and then drew them. And uh, yeah, so so I wanted the, the way words go into people's heads in a different way to pictures and words mm. together, or just pictures. I wanted to have those different experiences in the book. And and it also allowed me to sort of be inside a killer's head without revealing who the killer was, if there was just work, you know, that sort mm, of thing. Mm. Because... Um, and also, I mean, although I totally want Dragman to be a positive sort of message in the sense of, of just... J- just the message of the book is be who you are and... Mm be tolerant and people should be able to be who they are um i i i wanted to disguise that <laughs> not disguise it but i wanted to make an entertainment mm. that, that primarily was an entertainment it wasn't a sort of lecture you mm. know so yeah sorry i'm going off on no, no no it's really interesting
1: yeah. and and for you matt having a formal structure that you can start off with and then break was that helpful as a creator
6: i i'm a huge fan of uh, the nine panel grid um mm. so <laughs> that's awesome um I always try. Like Every time I start a new project, I'm like, all right, okay, this time I'm going to make things easy for myself. I'm going to do a nine-panel grid. Or uh, I'm working on a new one now um, about my time in uh, Tokyo during the 2011 (laughs) Japanese earthquake. I'm going to do everything on a six-panel grid. I'm not going to overthink everything. This, Let me get the stuff out and then... uh...
0: When there's an earthquake, you can mess with the grid in a beautiful way. (laughs) I I didn't even make it as far as the earthquake. I Uh, I,
6: I think uh, there's... If you flip through this, there's like two pages where I stuck to that nine-panel and I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe I'll drop this down. Like, it just... I always try to start that way, and I guess that helps. Mm. And then, as you're sketching it out and figuring out the thumbnails, you're like, you realize that you can break it and not to limit yourself. But like, I always try. Like, okay, I, I just waste so much time trying to be, you know, clever and trying to figure out. I'm just gonna do this many on every single page, and oh, I'll be so fast now. I'll just be able to like just mm. pump out panels, <laughs> and it never, it ever, ever that works. That. Never works. Mm. So I want to be more strict, but. I'm just too... But
1: then something like your um, your sci-fi comics anthology, uh, which you said actually is still semi-autobiographical Some... <laughs> in terms of you know a visual metaphor, uh, you seem to set yourself a challenge there where it's an anthology of very short stories, but they're all part of a larger narrative. So it's almost like this is the kind of cage that I've created for myself and then how do I break out of it you know?
6: yeah I mean that one was kind of reverse engineered so this is my, my sci-fi yeah intergalactic <laughs> terror um I'm in the clock tower to you're, you're a very good <laughs> um, always be closing um yeah. I, I, I I team up with different artists um and I try to write for submissions so like I find okay this theme then I try to write something for it and then I had like two or three and then I kind of realized these kind of fit together and then I kind of reverse engineered uh i think like stephen king did that with uh some of his short stories and mm-hmm. um the first dark tower book i think he had the short stories that he then said no if i just add a little bit of connective tissue so then i i did kind of the second half of whatever and they're not in order but the the second couple of stories they all were then fit into this this cage as you said that i've created for myself Mm. But I had the pieces, because like I said, I always, whatever I've got, I want to use it somehow. Mm. So I've got these pieces, like, okay, this kind of fits together. If I just write a thing to kind of bridge it, then they will all to be one. And now it becomes 10 short stories that are threaded together by the end.
1: Nice. Cool. Um, well, we've got about 20 minutes left. Uh, if you could raise the house lights, if anyone in the audience uh, has any questions for any of our artists. The gentleman over there. Um, so, um, uh, Larry David uh, of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, in an interview, uh, I remember him being asked, um, how difficult is it for
0: you to play this fictional, this horrific fictional version of yourself? Uh, and he said, well, actually, that version of myself that you see in the show, that's the real me. This is the
1: fictional
0: um, I wonder if, does that... Apply also to any of the members of the panel? Who wants to go? Gosh, well, well, I, it's a fantastic answer that Larry <laughs> gave. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I hope this is the real me. You know, like I was saying before, uh, I don't know. The drag man version of me is pretty me, it's pretty <laughs> much me. I guess, but except for the flying. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, everyone says I'm really nice in the comics, so maybe that's a lie. I think I'm quite spiky, but... Yeah. There, there was a time when I did myself in comics and I wrote a Radio 4 series, which was Stephen Appleby's Normal Life, mm. and that entertained me because somebody else played me, do you know what I mean? And I thought, mm. I liked the surrealness of that, and then, there was, and then I was able to have a female actress play me in one episode and mm. and the director thought that was amusing because he didn't know that I actually dressed like this in secret and all those sorts of things were fun to play with but and I remember I liked you know Robert Crumb strips where he had himself in them all the time and stuff but I quickly kind of tired of actually being in my own strips mm. I, I can't quite think why I like it to be more weird more surreal more Strange, you know. I'd rather be a chair in a strip. I think that's why I was drawing a chair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Sarah, do you ever find? Are you the Larry version of yourself? Um, I think, in a way, she takes on the
4: real identity. Um, and I don't know. Like she's there to be in, interpreted in a different way. doesn't relate to me so much anymore because, mm. yeah, it's a different form. It's a cartoon vessel. But in terms of me acting right now, um, that isn't the case for me. It, you know, it's, I feel yeah, she was based on me, but she's she's grown from that.
1: Hmm. Any other questions? Yep, in the middle,
3: if you were to create a, a new story from scratch, would you start with drawings? Would you start with characters? Would you start with the idea of where the story is going to go and the whole, the whole picture, or would you just start
1: with? the
5: idea just the first part um sorry my kind of made-up stories always start with characters my stuff's very character driven um i'll maybe do a few sketches but it's mostly um writing stuff down at, at the beginning um i'll kind of just start asking them questions which sounds really silly but um like just what what do you like what do you want what do you need uh where do you live do you like it there like i don't know i pretend to have a conversation with them to to kind of learn about um who they are and that then um uh yeah starts me thinking about the setting and their friends and Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
6: it it depends on what it is like really from project to project like I'm trying to do more and more short stories which are all kind of fun experiments and you try to do it and approach it in different ways Uh, I'm adapting a story now that I originally wrote as like a pro short story and I found that that's a terrible way of working because comics are so completely different like you can't it's I always I thought like okay it was for a, a university course or a college course I took and I wrote down the story so I got the story down I got the structure down which is helpful but like there's no translation from like one paragraph to one page or one sentence to one panel like it's a complete page one rewrite so having that as like a a very oblique roadmap has been helpful but I really it's almost more work having to reverse engineer it from that short story but when I'm doing um short comic stories sometimes I'm just writing it out sometimes I'm getting research if it's like I'm doing I've done a couple of true crime stuff lately, and just getting a bunch of research, almost like writing an essay, and then turning that into a script. Or I've got the idea, and it's more of a, a visual thing that I will sketch it out. But it, it all just kind of varies from project to project, and like, I don't, I know I have like the proper way I should be writing a script and doing the thumbnails and the sketching pencils, but invariably it's just kind of like whatever I feel like today, and like what helps me do another page. Mm. Um, so it is just kind of whatever mood I'm, I'm in.
1: Mm. And Sarah, do you start with word or image when you begin a project?
0: Um, it, it
4: depends on the project, because sometimes I um, think of an image and I want that to be the way and sometimes, for instance, for 10 years, it was very research-led, so I took a quite regimented approach in developing the script first, and I would not kind of, I had images in, in my mind but I wanted to be led by the narrative, and um, yeah, but I think um, with some sequences in one, for instance, I just kind of have, you know, you have the vision and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to make that happen, and you just can see
3: it really clearly.
1: Mm, interesting. Any other questions? Yeah.
3: Uh, do you ever find that um, you go somewhere to an event or a location specifically as an observer because you want to turn it into a comic? Or do you find that when you're at places, sometimes you kind of zone out and become an observer?
0: I, th- I, think, I think I've think i always felt slightly stepped back and observing. So that's kind of the whole time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever gone to an event and then used it. I don't think. Rachel?
5: Uh uh, yeah, I would say life, I just go about my life, and if something happens, I'll put it in a comic. I've never, uh, I've never chosen to do something because I've thought this would make a good comic. It's mm. always the other, the other way around. Otherwise, that would seem a little bit, I don't know, fake. I <laughs> um,
1: mean, there have been one or two comics about comic book conventions. And yeah. I think that would be actually must be quite an interesting thing for a creator.
5: It's, it's <laughs> a bit meta, yeah, when it gets to that stage. Um, I spend so much time, time at comic conventions, it would... <laughs> Um, be silly not to to talk about them. But yeah.
6: <laughs> mm-hmm. Matt, um, I, yeah, same like Sarah, uh, Rachel started was saying like just kind of reflect back like okay I can see there's a bit of a structure that I can kind of massage into this story, but like I when I was doing more regular web comics and the and the comic strip in the paper like. I found myself just kind of trying to say the wittiest thing I could at any moment and trying to engineer or try to like guess how the day was going to go because this would be great to write about if I could make it fit into that gag panel, like six panels, and that's just no way to live. <laughs> it's intolerable for people around you, and it's also really stressful just like, but if I, if I can say this and then I get my wife to say this in response, and I can hit her with a zinger, boom, four panels, baby! But no one wants that.
1: And Sarah, do you...?
4: I'm um, very, very good to what everyone else um, has been saying, like the terrible English but, um I think the only exception um, there was just do, doing the residency where I knew I was um, searching for kind of a narrative to be inspired by my location. So there I was looking for things, You know, I was looking at the architecture, looking, so not really for comic conventions, but yeah, just anything that kind of captured um, my attention that I wanted I knew I wanted to feed into the narrative I was writing but yeah in terms of going to conventions and yeah I just I just I wait for things to come to me and Mm. I think um, I'm very led by the topic as well so like you know the environment like religion so if if it's like conversations like about you know what We had last night, or general conversations about the comic, but it's not
1: something I want to um mm. in drawing. So. Although it was interesting that you said earlier that uh, you were curious about how your family would feel about you drawing them in your comic, and obviously the graphic novel ends before you've finished drawing the graphic novel. Yeah. Um, but it would be interesting to see a follow up where you document the experience of having made the first book and how your family related to that. Was that too meta? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Um, yeah, I think perhaps good um, time, that may be something I, I would do, but at the moment, um, it all feels
3: too uh,
1: recent, mm. basically. Okay. Mm. Any other questions?
0: Is, is any of your motivation for sharing your stories to help other people who are maybe in similar situations? Well, I mean, with, with the Dragman book, I hope... That might be an effect of it, but but it wasn't the prime reason for doing it at all. Yes. I wanted to make a good book that people would enjoy reading who had no interest in trans at all, but people who had similar experiences or were struggling or whatever would perhaps find it find it helpful. But.
1: I mean, Rachel, you said that your comics in a way came out of therapy. so it sounds that inadvertently or not, you are creating your comics to, Uh, if not, help yourself. (laughs) Yeah,
5: no, that's where my kind of autobiography stuff started, to help me and to get some of my feelings out on paper. Um, And it wasn't until I did, um, I brought out like a small version of Wired Up Wrong, which was kind of uh, my first sort of mental health book about me. Um, and the first iteration of it was just 40 pages long. And I thought people would read it and go, oh, Rachel's a bit weird. But people read it and would came up to me at conventions and said it really helped them and and that I made them feel less alone, which is a, an incredible um, thing for someone to say to you. Um, so then it began, it, it started being like, okay, I can help uh, me and other people. So I released uh, Wired It Wrong as a much longer book. Yeah, so it's it, it, not to begin with, but then it became a really... Lovely uh, Mm. sort of byproduct of uh, my stuff.
1: Mm. And Sarah, have you felt that you were telling your story as well to help other members of your community?
4: Um, Yeah, I think it was more actually for just representation of the community to those that you know didn't know any Muslims and all they ever saw of Muslims was when they saw them in the news. So that was um, I I think there was a need for that because I feel there's such a lack of. Empathy for you know how Muslims are being treated around the world. Well. Nobody, you know, do they care that in China Muslims are being um, put in concentration camps? You know, although that wasn't in the news at the moment, but I just feel like there's just soaps, just there's just no interest. Like everyone just wash their hands with, like anything happening. So yeah, that was more of the motivation. For
1: mm. me. But it seems that in a way you were inadvertently kind of surfing the zeitgeist to use a horrible term um, because uh, your and Sabah Khan's books came out at a similar time Mm -hmm. you know talking about being the experience of a British woman who comes from um, a different generationally from a different part of the world from a different culture and how you are kind of becoming the voice in a way of that minority because you've put your experience on Mm -hmm. paper.
3: And I think um,
4: one thing um, myself and Sarah have been talking about is, you know, we want more people, because myself and Sabah's story are quite, uh, quite similar, but our actions were different um, at the time. And I think, um, you know, reflecting on releasing this book, um, is my book going to be useful? Yeah, this is why Islam is compatible with the West, because of certain characters. But actually, this is also a commentary on the community itself that, we need to become more open in, you know, interfaith um, marriages, but also, yeah, just kind of the stereotype that everyone has. And so, I, d- I just hope that there's more, you know, from every minority, not just ours, that come forward and share their story. Because mm. we need more voices out there.
1: Mm. And Matt, has your book been helpful for other people who find out that they're married to a cartoonist? Yes, tell <laughs> <laughs> me. Well, it was,
6: it was funny because um, I met Rob, Rachel's partner, and we were talking and saying, oh, like uh, my girlfriend's downstairs, oh, what kind of stuff should she do? Autobuy. I'm like, oh, me too! And then I said, "Like, are you in her stuff? Like, Do you get to approve it or whatever? Because I know my wife always has to check stuff out before it goes public. And then I realized that I knew who he was, and then I... I've just read so much stuff about him, so it's just really kind of <laughs> a weird thing. Um, so I think there should be a support group for people that are partners of cartoonists that have <laughs> auto-bio to, to talk about that experience. <laughs> We've
1: got time probably for one last question.
2: Yeah. Um, this is uh, the literally open question. Uh, so
1: it's like. but uh, what lessons have you learned throughout your career?
6: <laughs> Back up your files. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anyone else?
6: I, I think be careful if anyone's doing autobiography, just the fact that there's other people in your life. And so your story involves other people's stories, but their stories aren't always your stories mm-hmm. to tell. Like I've learned that the hard way. Um, so just trying to, you know, and your truth is not always everyone else's truth. That might not be those people experience it. So that's always just like a really tight rope to walk just be careful of that like that's something that i've just been aware of just i can present myself i'm i I have the power all the power when i'm you know transcribing my life and drawing my life uh the people that are in my story just happen to be caught in my orbit and they're not getting a chance to to say what their truth is so just be aware of that power
0: Mm -hmm. i suppose one thing i've i think realized is (laughs) because things have changed as the years have gone by, but is, is that, you know, I can, I, I'm not a sort of unique person. There are going to be millions of people similar enough to me that what, what, what I do will connect with them, you know, so 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 even if I've thought, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't do this because it's kind of like I'm, I'm the only person interested in that, actually there's going to be a lot of people interested. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Rachel, anything that you've learned about um, being a cartoonist?
0: <laughs> if you
5: sell the originals of your comics, they sell a lot faster if you put a cat in them.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
5: so get a cat if you want to do whatever. Like
1: and Sarah, I mean, I suppose you're, you know, like Rachel, still quite early in your career. Uh, put cats in. <laughs> I'm more of a dog boss,
4: I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so I think for me, like the thing that I want to improve in myself, so it's not really advice, is that. I just want to make more work, so I just want to work quicker. I just get really, like, um, just absorb in detail. I feel like I just kind of, like, fall asleep on a drawing and I just get in a trance. And then before I know it, like, three hours have gone by, and I've just been, like, doing wiggles. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's
6: what I want to kind of improve about myself.
1: Uh, uh, yes. We probably squeeze one more quick question in. There was a hand over there. Yes? Uh,
3: yeah, I want to ask something about uh, what was said earlier about representation. Um, and I think, particularly um, in the mental health community, for example, there is the question on the debate about who has the right to speak for others and who can represent you know, can I do more of an activist or <coughs> present other people with group So just, if you say that you can be the voice of that community, I hope that you kind of that and it doesn't become, it's not a straightforward thing I mean, do you do have the right to speak for that community. You, you know what I mean? So mm. it's, uh, it's not,
0: it's not... Like, <coughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i certainly just speaking for myself you know and yeah. it's up to other people whether they you know how they respond to that and, and I'm not trying to be a voice of and I'm guessing you're just yeah,
5: <laughs> um, yeah. I mean yeah your mileage may vary um, and I, I'm always very um, uh, upfront about my, my books aren't self-help books they're not you know you shouldn't buy my book instead of Going to talk to a doctor, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, yeah. I only ever speak for myself.
4: Um, yeah. I was going to just, you know, Steve announced that perfectly for me, and I was mm. just going to say as well. We're just sharing end of and um, we're just showing our stories. So like nobody can take that away from us. It's we're not using it to kind of like umbrella everyone under the same kind of experience. Mm.
1: Mm. On a Powerful note. I'd like to thank all four of our creators, Matt Smith, Rachel Smith, Stephen Appleby, and Sarah Begum. A big round of applause. The panel discussion with Stephen Appleby, Sarah Begum, Rachel Smith, and Matt Smith was recorded at last year's Lakes International Comic Art Festival, which will be returning again this autumn in the Lake District, nearer to Lake Windermere. You can find more info about the Lakes Festival by going to comicartfestival.com and it's worth checking into their website as they have various other comics events, such as literary activities, in connection with their sponsorship of the Comic Laureate, who this year is comics retailer Stephen Holland, as well as news about the Autumn Festival. So please go to ComicArtFestival.com for all of that. Stephen Appleby's work can be found at StephenAppleby.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-A-P-P-L-E-B-Y.com. Sarah Begum's work can be found at Sarah.co.uk. That's S A Y R A dot Rachel Smith's website is rachelsmith.org, That's R A C H A E L Smith And Matt Smith's website is Smith versus Smith That's Smith vs Smith, dot com. If this is the first episode of Panel Borders that you've tuned into, then you can find over 500 previous episodes on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. These include interviews with the likes of Audrey Neffenegger, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Raymond Briggs, Brian and Mary Talbot, Art Spiegelman, Gerald Scarfe, Marjan Satrapi, Sandy Toxfig, and many, many more. Panel Borders is broadcast on the first Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm, repeated the following Sunday at 11am. And between now and the next episode, if there isn't another lockdown, then it's worth checking out comic book exhibitions that are currently taking place in London. A pioneer of sequential art, who was mentioned in Lawrence's talk at the beginning of this show, William Hogarth, is the subject of the exhibition Hogarth and Europe, at Tate Britain on Millbank in London. This runs until the 20th of March, and is a terrific new exhibition looking at Hogarth and his European contemporaries' work in the 18th century. Hogarth can be seen as the father of the graphic novel by creating such sequential work as Marriage à la Mode, The Rake's Progress, A Harlot's Progress, and many more. And this new show juxtaposes Hogarth's work with that of many of his European contemporaries, so you can see how his satirical art was reflecting trends that were going on across the continent. Hogarth in Europe runs at Tate Britain until the 20th of March, and you can find more info at tate.org.uk. There are also choice examples of Hogarth's work on display at the Cartoon Museum just off Oxford Street. They reopen today, and their current exhibition, Black, runs until the 15th of January featuring art from a new graphic novel with words by writer Tobias Tate and art by cartoonist Anthony Smith. Black is a searing look at the world of crime in 1970s Britain and the exhibition gives insight into the creation of this graphic novel and on the Cartoon Museum website you can also find a Spotify playlist inspired by the exhibition which might be worth listening to on your personal audio device when you walk around the art on site. Also on display at the Cartoon Museum until the 5th of June is an experiment called Laughter Lab, devised in partnership with Robin Dunbar, the Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford, which investigates just what makes a cartoon funny and whether science holds the answers. Both of these temporary exhibitions are on display alongside the Cartoon Museum's permanent collection of comic book art from Britain across the centuries which you can find alongside their very well-stocked shop containing graphic novels and cartoon-related merchandise. There's more info about the Cartoon Museum at cartoonmuseum.org. Returning to the South Bank, the current exhibition at Somerset House is Beano, The Art of Breaking the Rules, celebrating the much-loved British comic periodical. At this exhibition, you can step into the pages of the comic and take a trip into Beano Town to explore how this beloved icon of British comics has fired up successive generations to break the rules, while discovering artists who push boundaries in their own original and wonderful ways. Alongside original artwork from the comic, there's representation of modern writers, musicians, painters, and sculptors who were influenced by the Beano, including the likes of Sarah Lucas, Martin Creed, Martin Rosen, and many more. If you're worried about Covid restrictions meaning that you can't visit, there is the opportunity to rebook your ticket if you buy in advance. There's more info about the exhibition, Beano the Art of Breaking the Rules, at somersethouse.org.uk. That's S-O-M-E-R-S-E-T house.org.uk. If you don't want to venture out onto the streets of the big smoke, there are various comic book-related discussion groups taking place online, with the next meeting of Ladies Do Comics taking place on the 17th of January. LD Comics is a women-led comics forum open to all, who recently have awarded prizes to up-and-coming female graphic novelists, with Michelle Freeman winning their award shortlist for 2021 with her title The Room of Stars and Judy Powell winning the Rosalind B Penfold Award with Ways to Kill My Mother's Lover on Limited Pocket Money and with Minimum Mess. To find out more info about LD Comics, including their graphic novel competition, the artist residency, one-to-one mentorship and much more, as well as an online directory to all of their past speakers, not to mention the meeting on the 17th of January please go to ldcomics.com. Also online, Cartoon County, the Brighton and Hove-based comic book meetup, where a cartoonist comes along and talks to me about their work in front of an online audience who can ask questions of the visiting cartoonist, returns on Monday, January the 31st. This month's guest is yet to be announced, but previous artists who have spoken at Cartoon County include Simon Morton, Josephine Edwards, Jamie Huxtable, Sabah Khan, Scott Jason Smith, and many more. And you can find out more about Cartoon County and all previous guests by going to cartooncounty.com, or going to the website of this radio show, Panel Borders, where you can find podcasts of these previous Cartoon County recordings. Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back on Resonance on the 2nd of February. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening.
0: This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.